Hello and welcome to the Mic Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by John Cutler, Head of Product Research and Education at Amplitude. As a former UX researcher at Appfolio, a product manager at Zendesk, Pendo.io, AdKeeper, and RichFX, a startup founder and a product team coach, John has a perspective that spans individual roles, domains, and products. I'm a follower and big fan of his insights on product thinking and think that just about every organization stands to gain a tremendous amount from his sage advice. So it's great to have John with us today to share that out. And with that, let's get started. Welcome, everyone. I'm very happy to be here with John Cutler. And John is, I think I'd best describe him as a sage and a poet of, of product <laughs> thinking and of DevOps. And John, you laugh, but but the number of times I both laugh at one of your tweets, such as you are uh, defining mistakeholder management for me as the art of gently breaking into people that they're wrong, I then find myself applying these concepts for that week, that month, and, and often much longer. So it's great to be here with you. I think uh, you may have the record for sort of most Twitter screenshots embedded in DevOps and Agile presentations from anyone I know, <laughs> uh, certainly my own. And I would just love to pick your brain right now in terms of you know where you're at, in terms of the sort of trailblazing that you've been doing, I think, in product thinking. And mm -hmm bringing some of the ideas that we know work within digital natives and have so much trouble being implemented in some large organizations. So I think where we could start is with this question that I think you've been getting for quite a long time that, that I seem to be getting quite a lot now is, what is a product? So I think you've given us Oh, some I love that. Tell us, what, what, I, what is a product? <laughs> what I think is fun about that question, I remember being at DevOps Enterprise Summit in, in Las Vegas and there was a lean coffee and someone scribbled, you know, what is a product? And we thought, oh, we're going to get through this topic and we're going to get to the other topics. And we literally spent the whole one hour in the basement or whatever hotel it was talking about what is a product to do it. My definition of it is pretty broad, but I tend to think of a product is I look at a human being, I look at a human being's needs, like what they're trying to accomplish. And then I think about a unique combination of design and technology aligned to be able to meet that need in a way that is helpful to the human being, but also creates sort of sustainable, differentiated growth for the company that does that. There's plenty of products that we know and love that didn't last, you know, that they didn't stick around. And so there's an element of sustainability built into that. But I take a pretty broad view of it. An example, when I worked at Zendesk, which is like customer support, you know, people would call everything a product and I'd be like, that's not really a product. Like that's more packaging. You know, you found some way to package our existing stuff. So I kind of take this purist idea of meeting a human need in a differentiated way with design and technology in a way that helps the human being and then helps the business. I think what's interesting with that definition of it, it there's definitely overlaps in, in service design and other views of value delivery. You know, so I'm I'm pretty as product nerds go, I probably take a broader definition than many people do, but that's that's where I go with it. So it's not a skew. It's not a skew. Yeah, we know it's not a skew to do things. I'm not but, sure we know it's not a skew, by the way. So uh you might need you might need to educate. Well, yeah, is it a skew? It could be. Let's put it that way. And I think this is the thing that's really important for companies is that are debating, you know, what is a product. You know, I work at a software as a, as a service company, Amplitude, it's a startup. And depending on the day, sometimes we call the whole company our product. And sometimes we call the product, the product. Sometimes we call some part of the product, a product. 
And I think that people imagine that, you know, the companies that are doing this have it all figured out and have a definition that's perfect to them. But in reality, day to day, even in like a rapidly growing quote unquote product first company, we still have kind of variable definitions of it. So I'm hesitant sometimes when we try to get an exact definition. One thing I've noticed in these large corporate environments, big, large enterprises, the defining of things is actually extremely important from a standpoint of budgeting and and various things. So I can understand why in those organizations, there's a lot of debate to try to pin down exactly what a product is or what it isn't, because it relates to how people are paid and incentivized and the money they have. So I think it is a big deal in, in big companies. Startup like mine, it doesn't matter so much, I think. Okay. But so it is a big deal with a lot of organizations that I work with who, yeah. and I think for exactly some of the reasons that you outline, right? They're trying to make the shift from project to product. They are sitting on a portfolio of 300, 500, <laughs> 5,000 applications, and they're sitting there actively mapping the portfolio of those applications onto what the products are, and then asking these questions like, is this cute? Is the user experience? Is it defined by the market? Do we have internal products? Is it the same as services? And so on. So I think you've got, I actually personally do think it's, it's good to work at it from first principles. And so you're saying it meets a human need. Because I think we, we do need these forcing functions, and I, at least because I, I see some of these organizations trying to boil the ocean of what the product is and actually have this perfect definition up front, whereas the way I, I hear you think is there is more of this discovery process with the market, with moving from what you are today to how you're going to sort of drive more innovation through design and technology and so on. But how can you actually help us break through that ocean boiling of an organization? I've seen this repeatedly, spending six months <laughs> trying to define their entire product portfolio and wondering if they got it right? Well, the approach that I tend to think about it is that there's the sort of, there's the map and then there's the definitions. There's the boundaries. There's what you draw all over the map. And so for me, the idea of going from a human need as that sort of persistent that is going to last decades and then thinking about our various interventions and the whole sort of value chain of that particular thing that's not very debatable. I mean, maybe our understanding of it is or our assumptions or our beliefs around, but that's thinking about, and when you think about a value chain and you think about those parts and how they fit together, you can see that, you know, we could map it, we could put it on the wall, we could do those things. But I think what we're talking about is the drawing on top of that map. I'll just use Zendesk as an example. I don't work there now, but I used to, but you can think that the idea that human beings are going to need customer support for something they've purchased which is really the need to like get the use out of the things that they've purchased. That's not going away anytime soon, right? That's going to be around for a really long time. Now, the way that we deliver on that need, we might use machine learning in the future, or it might you know, be human beings in another context, or it might be a service offering in another concept, or it might be, oh, I've got to use a mobile app right now to do it. Those things change with time. You know, our interventions change. I think where people get stuck up, and, and actually this happens in a lot of things, is that once we start talking about our org chart and we start talking about definitions and how we're trying to draw boundaries in our company, that's where the politics start. In a pure sense, value chain mapping or anything like that is actually a pretty pure activity. Designers love it. We can break it down. We can do that thing. And I don't know if that specifically answers your question, but I think that people need to distinguish in their mind between the value chain, like talking about human value and what you need to do to be able to kind of deliver that value. And then what you're trying to do in your organization in terms of either org design decisions, kind of the work you're doing to do it, or that, you know, what you need to call the touch points in your particular product. I know that's 
still kind of conceptual and maybe not what you were looking for, but I think that that's the first step. The first step is think about the value chain from a very pure solution agnostic, touch point agnostic way. And then when you have that map, then start to layer on your concepts of what your org is doing at the moment, you know, the touch points you have and the services you're offering to do that. One is persistent. It should last for decades or years. The other one may last for months or weeks or you know until you until you decide to change how you're delivering on that that need. A great example, you know, you think about Apple how how many times it's iterated on these different ways of doing things over the years and yes you buy your iPhone, you buy the thing, but that value stream sort of remains the same, which is why someone kind of buys the next iPhone when they want to. They're, they're literally, Apple could sell their iPhones through subscription if they wanted. <laughs> I think they might even have tried hey, to do that. Do. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to At do that end, where yeah. you have your forever plan to do that. So I don't yeah. know if that helps, but that's kind of how I think about it in two parts. So I think, so you're thinking about from the human need, you actually just reminded me a bit of Clayton Christensen's jobs to be done, right? Which is right. somehow you, know, you start with the end, you start with a customer, and the organization somehow needs to shift into that. So yeah. I think business leaders understand what value they're trying to bring to market. Technologists want to support that. We'll talk about why these yeah. things are two things are one in a moment, because I'm sure I just raised a flag there for you. But in terms of what you think about of an organization that's actually heading this in the right direction, or that's trying to solve this problem or understand this problem or identify this problem, I've heard you speak a lot about product-led companies, right? And yeah. we've had some really good examples and some really good thought leadership out there on what product-led companies are. So tell us what they are. Well, and I think this is, again, where kind of dogma and the cliches that come out of startups don't help the rest of companies in an effort to solve that. And again, I take a pretty pure view to it. I mean, product-led to me means thinking creatively about how to use design and technology to create force multipliers and step changes in what you're doing. Now, if all you're delivering is projects to spec and exactly how you're doing it, there's companies that do amazing businesses by delivering projects to spec <laughs> generally and delivering on those things. But it's not necessarily using problem solving and design and technology to change the trajectory of the business. And I think that that's kind of the key. Let's say you're a healthcare company and someone says you're being product led, you know, because you've hired some product managers. Ugh. You don't need that dogma coming from startups to, to, to get in your mind. What you need to think about is like, wow, we're all problem solvers here, including the doctors, including the scientists, including this. And we're sort of a part technology company and we need to think, we need to have service designers to deeply understand the landscape that doctors are working in. And wow, we've got data scientists to figure out how to use health data to do these things. And so it's, a, again, I take a pretty pure view that product-led isn't sort of just, I'm selling a digital product. It means kind of thinking about these force multipliers that you could create. A very practical example would be, you know, I worked in an organization that, had a team, a cross-functional team, get out of the building and try to understand the landscape and created an unexpected outcome for the business. Like what they thought was going to be N millions of dollars turned out to be N times whatever million dollars because the team used design and technology creatively to figure out what that step change would be. So that that's kind of how I, I view it. Now, I think one thing that happens is that in these organizations that are rock stars at something else in the world. I mean, I, I don't want to name the names of the companies, but I always think it's funny. So take, you know, I think we're thinking of a European country that is the best in the world at a certain type of retailing or a certain type of thing. They're literally the best in the world at thinking about how to make human experiences in stores, most amazing experiences. 
And when it comes to digital, though, they run a big project factory. <laughs> you know, like they can't apply. And it's not for lack of design. It's not lack for business acumen. It's not lack for learning how to take risks or anything like that. They just haven't embraced the ability for designers and technologists, I guess, to create those same force multipliers in their business. So meanwhile, their store experiences are absolutely amazing, but their digital experiences are terrible. <laughs> you know? Okay, so I think that, that that's, a, that's a really great example, because right? I think that's where a lot of the, the industry and the economy is struggling, right? You, you just, yeah. You're just the most amazing company in the world at, at making <laughs> furniture, for yeah. example. Yet that creativity, that thinking, that customer experience that you're so good at delivering and that we've been delivering over the last few decades is not translating into the digital experiences that you want to deliver, that, that right. the leadership of the company want, wants to deliver. So what guidance do you give to that furniture company or car company or financial <laughs> services company or healthcare company to, to actually break through that thinking? Well, there's the advice we give, and I think it's just the evidence that some of them need. I mean, I think that I think the thing is, if you've written software and designed software and digital experiences, you've internalized these realities that are very difficult to describe. And I call it the Marty Kagan effect. You can have anyone read Marty Kagan and they read the books like, oh my God, this is exactly how we need to build products. I'm so inspired after reading Inspired. But it's the unsaid part of that book that's very hard to communicate. It's the unsaid part about sitting there playing ping pong for half the day, thinking about a problem and then going to a whiteboard with some stickies and then you know some developers kind of scratching their heads for a while and doing that for a couple of days and trying some things. And then, oh, we have to like, we have to get a customer into the room and then, oh, we have to leave. There's all these kind of like, if you haven't been there, it can be very hard to communicate that it's not like the ideal. It's like this very, I, I like, Jessica Kerr's idea of, it is sort of like a band of fellows, you know, like of creators. And I think that if you haven't been part of that, it can be very difficult to relate to those things. And let's be like, here's a very, very crystal clear example. If you have never sat in a usability testing session and seen someone take your perfect idea and have no idea how to use it, it will never register to you why the six-month project that you think is going to be the perfect project, if you just do X, Y, and Z and wait for usability testing at the end, is not going to work. Similarly, if you've never had a group of designers and engineers get together and spend a week doing discovery together, you'll have no idea why asking your designers to do the perfectly designed mock-ups and test them will not work. <laughs> Both things are failed, the waiting to the end to do it, and then also trying to get the people together to do it and not do the perfect design. So unless you've experienced those things, it's very difficult, right? Would you concur? Like there's some things that you can think of in your career, unless you've been there, it's hard to relate. So I think that the advice I give to those companies is, can you create conditions where people can observe and experience this? Like, can you suspend disbelief for one second and create an environment where you can start to feel these things firsthand? I don't think there's any other way, really. I don't think you can use logic to back your way into this, frankly. <laughs> okay, so... In my experience, I think that the answer is that this is the following statement is true. I just wonder if you're if it is in yours. So in the tech companies, the digital natives who are innovators, senior leadership has had those experiences. Yep. And in say some furniture or car companies, maybe they haven't. So e even among the the tech companies, a 20-year-old tech company, I, I say this you know, related to my job at Amplitude, like we we divide our companies into three categories, like rapid scale-up startups tech 2.0 companies on their third or fourth or fifth act, and then massive enterprises that are trying to transform digital transformation. Now, the fascinating thing is 
The most stubborn ones are the second ones. The tech 2.0 companies that have had Mm. massive success in the past, and we can probably all think of those names, that optimized for maybe, you know, like OEM or optimized for how they were working in the past. And you would think that they have it all figured out because their founders were massively successful. But if you look at their founders, it's like, oh, they built uh, chips, you know, or they were involved in a business when frankly, anyone could have built X and it would have been massively successful. So even among those companies, even from the tech 2.0 companies that are trying to sort of get to these new acts, they are being disrupted as well. The challenge that they have is that they're so stubborn that they think they know how to do everything. So at a place like Amplitude, it's funny. I mean, we get more traction in many cases working with the large enterprises. You know, like one of our customers is Anheuser-Busch. And, you know, that team's amazing that we work with there thinking about how to use our particular products, you know, or big healthcare companies. The rapid scale-up startups, it's do or die. Like, unless they measure, they could go completely off base in what they're doing. But I don't know if that helps. I think that it's not just the experience. We all have to have new experiences. There's probably experiences that you and I need to have to be up on what the new realities are (laughs) of those things. So I don't know. We always have to keep learning maybe is one way to put it, but certainly I would agree with you that a great example, I was talking to a company in Europe recently with very successful founders, but they were all had background in like marketing led firms, you know, so they knew how marketing worked and capturing a market and doing that, but they had never seen these kind of experimentation from a product standpoint. So they treated their team really as like a big feature factory while the marketing team was the science of the organization, right? So it doesn't, it's a very specific style of experience that unless you've sort of sat there and done it, it might be very hard for you to process for people. Yeah. And I think what you just touched on, I think for me is, is, is just this common marker of, of a deeper problem where there's the thinkers and there's the doers, there's design, there's delivery, there's business, yeah. there's IT. And I absolutely see a common thread in how you've been leading to people to think differently about this, where it's not those two things, where you know, somehow the company embraces design thinking and the company is the product. So, right. well, actually, let's, uh, these three categories of yours, by the way, are fascinating. <laughs> so maybe we, can, we, maybe we can look at through that lens. So is that what you, tell us what you see in the rapid scale-ups, right? These are the companies who are moving and have created a flow and feedback and learning cycle. Which, Ho- you know, hopefully, so it, but again, it depends on the founder's background. You often have founders of whatever company then trying to start a small startup, right? But if you think about it, and you could probably divide that into pre-product market fit and then post-product market fit for those rapid scale-ups, yeah. but you know, they're either trying to they're trying to understand whether they've thread the needle with their product. Like, is it really something that's kind of creating the traction they want? And in some cases they found that, but they're now they're trying to create drivers for sustainable growth. Like, is their adoption model working? A great example is some, you know, B2B enterprise startups that frankly, initially they get some traction and and people are willing to pay them a lot of money, but they still haven't figured out how to get like a sustainable, scalable product to do that. But I think that the key delineator there is the urgency. The company will not exist if they can't iterate and learn and figure this thing out. And the problems that happen in those companies, like I said, is sometimes they're founded by people who don't necessarily have a product background or other things. But, but there's, it's a very like survival instinct for those particular companies. I think that the middle ones, the, the sort of tech 2.0 companies, 
it's funny because this sort of maps the standard flow of business, right? Like after you've had a success, you become a little bit more risk adverse, but there's pressure to grow. Do you grow doing what you know how to do? Or do you grow trying new things? You've started to get market share. You have that channels already built with your customers. Oh, if we could just dream up something more to sell our customers, we could double the revenue we get from all our customers, right? So you do that. I don't know if that's helping you answer the question. But I think using that lens of the thing, what you have to understand is, is that each of those particular phases have very unique challenges. That's the main thing that you need to understand from those phases. Yeah. yeah. In the success markets that you see in terms of organizations who become enough of a product company yeah. to start rapidly meeting a market need and kind of doing what oh, everyone's right, after in terms right, of innovation. Right. And I think that the one that you hit on there yeah. in the rapid scale-ups is, even though it varies by founder, this urgency of learning, and whether mm. it's learning product market fit or learning scale fit or, or right. whatever it is, you're seeing that as a success marker. Yeah, I think that, again, so if we sort of plot the challenge of the thing with what you're looking for for success, you know, initially, I always joke, you know, the founder of the company I work at, people come and say, you're an analytics company, what should I do at first? And he's like, just talk to people, you know, <laughs> like, in the beginning, you're just at least for B2B, you're kind of looking for just those earliest signals that you can become part of their workflow, that you're solving this kind of deep problem that you're working with. And what's interesting, I think, for most startups in that scale is at a certain point, even the founder can't fit all the customers in their head. There's new emergent personas that are there's trying to service. They talk about going up market, but they've never sold up market before. They've talked about how they need to earn money, but no one has quite figured that out. And you actually become like a victim of your success early on. So that's that kind of latter part of the scale up before you become those companies is that, and I think that's where measurement and the true creativity of a team comes to light because it becomes harder. You know, when you've got 12 personas that you're juggling and you've got this complex product that you're trying to navigate, the problems become a lot more acute when it comes to design and how to figure out those particular things. And so that's where I noticed that in that first category of the scale up startups, it, towards the latter part, it becomes a lot tougher to pick out, you know, the signals from the noise, at least when it comes to, to what's happening. You've pointed out they've got the urgency and they know how to measure. Yeah. So I think, and this is, I think this is really interesting, right? Is that your rapid scale-ups, your tech 2.0, which yeah. in my experience is actually quite similar, is they yeah. are more stuck in their own past successes or whatever's cemented their ways. And then there's enterprise, who yeah. I agree, they're more open, there's more desire to change. And so I kind of, I, I want to continue on this thread of what you're seeing in the rapid scale-ups, at least the ones where you are yeah. getting the right kind of signals of successful product thinking, that we can have enterprises draw some inspiration from. Yeah. So, oh, that's an interesting way to put it. I think that, you know what it, it really kind of boils down to is what percentage of your work you're doing with that you acknowledge is kind of risky and uncertain and that you need to move it forward. I mean, I think the key problem here is that the large enterprise is printing money. And 90% of their, even if they acknowledge that they're going to be disrupted if they don't change X, Y, and Z, there's so much inertia in that business going to just kind of keeping the business as usual running into that thing. And so I think in that first case of those, you know, what can you learn from those startups and doing it is more that what can teams do when they dedicate 80 to 100% of their energy on innovating and finding that fit with their product versus 80 to 100% of their energy just kind of keeping the trains running on time. I think that the lesson there for the large enterprise isn't necessarily to go and create an innovation lab or do, do whatever. 
but it's to really think about either through incremental funding of efforts or giving a really distinct value stream that a team is expected to go after. It's how can they create that singularity of focus that the team can do that. The number one problem in these large enterprises is these massive web of dependencies to get everything done. And this, and it's not just Saul, you know, I was speaking to a company earlier today where they said, we did a massive re-architecture and microservices everywhere and hundreds of product teams everywhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it made it worse. It just means that to get anything meaningful done, we need to have seven teams in the room <laughs> instead of doing that. So I think that these large organizations are under the impression that the only, you know, the only way out of this mess is to kind of decentralize by all these particular components and do all this. But in reality, they need to create conditions of focus. That's what the first, that's what the scale-up startups have. The middle category of the Tech 2.0 companies are actually pretty political. You know, people have their job, they do their thing. It's whose strategy is going to win. And if I can get the money, then I can get focus and I can do that. In these large enterprises, it's like you need to try to create the conditions where a team can iterate and experiment and continue working towards a value stream to do it. And I think that that's what you learn from the startups. And frankly, it's also what you learn when those startups go off base. There's many startups that are eight years old or seven years old that immediately try to do everything and anything and they lose their momentum too. So you can learn from that as well. Yeah, and so this point on focus just reminds me of the just brilliant talk that you gave with Peter Moore at DevOps Sunrise Summit, right? And, and one of the things that Peter talks about is, is this zone management, the zone mm -hmm. model, which I've personally applied to get this kind of focus, right? Companies yeah. get, they do get stuck in their own ways. The, the, you know, you've got some innovative dilemma around customers and so on. But if you can build up that focus, which this combination of incubation transformation zones and that one particular model and approach right. to it can actually do that. Right, it can it can provide this. Well, it's one approach to providing this focusing function. But at the same rate, I think we've all seen failures between whether it's through like oh these big companies can't do one or, thing right, let yeah. alone four things right. I think that yeah. that's the problem. I think, and I wanted to discuss it with Peter too, which I think is interesting, is that these models, whether it's Wardley's, you know, Pioneer Settler Town Planner, yeah. or these different zones, are highly appealing for some reason to the enterprise types. There's something that's so attractive to them because they like putting things in boxes. And quadrants. And quadrants. And what they miss, though, is that in all these models, the, the Wardley, Pioneer Settler, Town Planner thing is an example. They, all of these, it's a very symbiotic relationship between these things. It's not a carving up of your organization. It's like the pioneers steal from the town planners. The town planners make it possible for the pioneers to work. The settlers steal from the pioneers. And I think that even someone like Simon Worley said, you know, one of his concerns with settlers, pioneers, and town planners is that you have a company that can't even do one thing right, trying to do four things right <laughs> when they're working. And so I think that, so the question is, is how to break through that seduction. What are these leaders getting wrong in the enterprise about these particular zone models or dividing up these innovation models? And I think what they're getting wrong is what, you know, might be termed like the liminal state between these groups, you know, the transfer of information and knowledge, the ability to, a great example is for analytics, like with Amplitude, we have some teams that have made the shift from like a centralized analytics function that serves as the question and answer service for their organization to what I would call like analytics literacy as a service, where their goal is to up the analytics literacy of the whole organization. And that's a perfect example of thinking in a more forward thinking org design idea that instead of thinking about 
This is a siloed part of the organization that does your questions and answers. The analytics literacy as a service team is there to up everyone's skill level so that they can make decisions more quickly. So I think that the number one thing that the leaders are missing from these large enterprises about these sort of innovation models and org chart models is the interplay between the groups that make it all work. They just fall into the seduction of categorization, which they love. They love being able to say that you've got my pioneering team, you know, or something like that. So I don't know, you just got me thinking about that. But I think it's one of the the mistakes that the org chart gets so ossified in these large enterprises that you're battling the org chart. And so when you come in, I always say that there's strategy and structure. And what startups have is structure can match strategy. And in the, the Tech 2.0 companies, they sort of create replicants of the structure to launch new businesses. And in the massive enterprise, the main problem is, is as they become more product and design savvy, they've gone through these massive agile transformations and DevOps transformations only to realize that the structure does not match the strategy. A value stream-oriented strategy that you do that, the structure that they've formed internally cannot actually execute effectively on that strategy. And so I think that's an, you know another thing that these larger companies run into. <laughs> yeah, and John, I've absolutely seen the data that matches, right? So I've been on this, this mission of making value streams measurable for flow, and then yeah. that's what you see. And whether you see it through some of, we'll be very familiar to you with WIP, levels or flow load levels that are completely unsustainable, complete mismatches, again, from the strategy to how delivery works, not to mention that these are not one function. There are two functions, which we can get back to in a moment. But you mentioned something really important. I I think we're not going to stop. Well, you might, but I don't think I'm going to try to stop business leaders from trying to put things into quadrants because (laughs) it just seems like too much work. But I think what we can do, or at least what I'm trying to do, is allow them to measure things, whatever boxes they've put them into. And I think that there's very good ways of doing that. I think you just one of the points you just made, which is the gaps between the boxes that they have are, are huge problems. Right. So the it's been interesting in my personal experience around bringing products to market. I've actually found that thing from zone management useful, which is you don't bring something from incubation to transformation unless you're confident it's going to deliver on 10% of your revenue today. So there's a very right. clear boundary between those two boxes. And how can we, you know, when you've got these, because you made this really important point, which is when you're, when you're a large enterprise, you are printing money, right? The, the big yeah. bang theory from project to product. I met with them a year after publishing project to product. I met with the global COO, which was really interesting. And this person was very smart, very insightful and said, we don't have a problem. Our profits <laughs> are amazing. Fast forward another couple of years and, and those problems are actually now visible to the entire marketplace, right? Because yeah. they were not able to shift from that money printing inertia to what customers are asking for right now, which is a digital experience that others, be they more actually on the side of the scale-ups, are starting to offer, which are starting to edge in on this, as well as tech giants needing to move into finance, right? So I'm going to just throw this, this problem back at you. So I'm now in one of these organizations. You know, I recognize what you're saying, which is that easily compartmentalizing things into boxes doesn't really work, that somehow we need to get design technology together what do I do? Do I hire 400 product owners and I'll be okay? Uh, no, do I, do I think I that... <laughs> project management, do I put a project manager as a CEO, a product manager as a CEO, I should say? So, I mean, I think you bring up, I mean, one thing is important to just acknowledge that how we treat the different parts of the quadrant will be very, very different. 
I mean, I think that that was the advantage of Pioneer Settlers Town Planners is that there was some acknowledgement that the org chart and how those groups are structured and what they need needs to be different to be able to do that. And so the first thing that comes to mind, I think, is just, and this kind of goes back to the just the beginning when we talked about, you know, if you've worked in technology, or if you've worked in design, you have, you just have the sixth sense for the unique natures of that challenge, right, to do that. So I think the first thing to do is, I guess the benefit of these models, right, is, is that if you have something that is completely new and emergent for the company, you need to create conditions that are very suitable for that type of activity, right? And so thinking about when you think about measuring value chains and you measure that, at, at that point where there's so many unknowns for that thing, you really need to be creating these conditions where that whole team can be together. There's no necessarily like JIRA. There's, you know, like it really is that emergent when you try to get those things going. I was speaking with a product leader about it too. And I realized their problem is by trying to treat everything the same, they were not giving the truly innovative efforts they were working on, the care and attention and the support that they needed to do it. And so I think that that's the first thing that comes to mind from those things is that the benefit of putting these things in these categories, at least understanding the shape of the work, like the risks that are oriented with the work, what you are able to do from there is you're able to at least try to persuade the organization to create conditions which are suitable for that type of work to do those things. And so I think that that's like a good but I think that the mistake is like this innovation lab approach. Like there's no plan for how to migrate those yep. things to the other parts yep. of the organization as they mature and they do that. So yeah, I don't the whole money printing thing is interesting because these companies will go out and spend hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars to go and buy innovative companies that they feel that will future-proof their business but they will never invest that money internally to create those internal capabilities. Like many of them are so persuaded that the behaviors necessary for innovation are not possible within their company. And so it's not about even how they spend money. People talk about, well, you have to align budgeting and how they do these things. These big companies have no problem taking risks on outcome-driven investments. Mm -hmm. They have VC arms, you know, they have investment arms. Mm -hmm. they, they're not clueless about how to invest money to get outcomes. The reality is they can't invest like that internally. I think that's <laughs> it. And I, actually, these innovation labs, I agree. It is amazing how significant a lift they are, but I think you're right. They're not working in the way these companies are expecting. These yeah. companies know they, they want innovation, but yeah. I think I think you just nailed it. Is they don't and know. They also have a weird idea of what it what it looks like. I think that that's the thing that we talked about those different people with different areas of experience is that innovation is very, 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 very messy in digital. There's not the same the classic thing is around my ecosystem at the moment with analytics and things. And I always have to remind people internally that executives have been sold the promise of using data to form decisions for 15, 20, 25, 30 years, right? Yep. The value prop of doing that, what we find at Amplitude is that those executives are not, they don't have any idea how the teams that do it, do it. Mm -hmm. So an example is that like Facebook has this highly popularized metric that said something like, if you share with more than seven people, then, you know, you've created a customer or some kind of viral growth. Yeah, their first viral growth. Yeah, method. and so a lot of the executives, when they think about a product like Amplitude, they said like, well, what's our magic metric? Yeah. What's our magic metric? I've read that you can have a magic metric and then the team can yeah. figure that out. And you're like, 
no, actually that has nothing to do with what it looks like when a team is doing this. Like the team is shipping week in, week out and learning and running experiments and testing. And they've got things that are working that they're optimizing. They've got new things that are completely new. It's like, it's a lot messier than they expected. I forget exactly how we got to this, but I think it still comes back to even using the word innovation. I don't think a lot of the people making these investments have been in the environment where the quote unquote innovation is happening. So they don't really have a picture in their mind about what it would look like or what it would require to support. Well, yeah. And remember where you started, right? Is have these executives been in a user experience design session or taking yeah. these great ideas they just had for how they're going to bring something novel to market and seeing what a real interaction with a, with a user would be like. So, and it's, it's interesting. It's like the, the innovation lab approach doesn't actually, I'm not sure it fosters that. You know, we've got demo days, we've got dojos, and we've got these incubators, but somehow they're they're not providing the right innovation operating model for these companies, right? Whereas yeah. I think what you've seen is companies who are where the company is the product and is around digital innovation for the customer, there is a very different approach. And so yeah, I'd like your reflection on this because my view on this is, okay, well, let's not encourage these organizations to go and set up the next three innovation labs yeah. or bimodal <laughs> environments or whatever they are. Let's have them actually understand and measure value in yeah. their value streams, both from the point of view of enabling flow. So things like reducing yeah. whip, right? When you actually can see these flow metrics, you can help create the conditions for the teams to do yeah. work because we're dealing with this massive legacy disconnect between the business and IT, right? That, that just shouldn't be there, that you know isn't there in these, innovate, in these companies who can innovate. Yeah. And then let's bring forward the measurement of business outcomes, such as things like what Amplitude does, right? Right into the fold as well so that the teams themselves have visibility into the value that they're delivering and they can actually test the outcomes of those hypotheses and experiments. It's interesting you actually frame it like that because I think that the one thing that I see missing from a lot of these larger companies is whether it's an impact tree or a value chain map or something like that. I mean, a great example is let's say it's a major retailer in the United States and it's the pandemic or whatever and they're just trying to, they're trying to figure out like what the the component capabilities that are required to get something into a person's car or their home. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, the major retailers, like Target's a good example of someone who set up curbside pickup, right, to be able to get those things. And so that required, obviously, technology, and it required, last time when I was at the Target, it required them to figure out the, the sidewalk. You know, you had to be able to, like, get to those things. But one thing's kind of interesting is that mapping out the value chain in this solution agnostic way with the kind of the inputs and outputs of what's created is often, I think, what really allows these organizations to focus their efforts. Because if you look at that map and if you say like, where would applying design and technology, where do we need the force multiplier to do this? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of, you know what I notice this a lot is with these internal teams that have internal customers and internal things like that. Like you'll talk to like a data engineering team, like, well, what's your product? Well, we're the data platform for blank enterprise. What does doing your thing faster or more effectively or whatever do for the business? Well, I don't know. We've set these SLAs. It's great. We meet our SLAs. No, 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 no. Like, where is the leverage point? Like, have you just hit the max that you can do in terms of data engineering to help the organization? And then you hear interesting things. Like, you're like, actually, that's a great question because for a part of what we do, we are hitting the max. There's only so many ways to store data and make it available in the organization to make whatever. But when it comes to this, we've scratched the surface. 
look, here's a whole area where there's massive inefficiencies in the business. Have we applied machine learning to be able to figure out the logistics picture there? No. And so what you notice with these internal teams is that unless you have the map, unless you have like the, the value chain, or unless you have that thing in front of you, the teams don't even know where innovation will create outsized outcomes for their business. Meanwhile, I think the business people do. So this is where the disconnect happens is the right. assumptions that have like, yeah. these people are not silly. You know, someone yeah. from the finance team or whatever has mapped out this thing and thought yeah. about like, well, you know, there's only, there's only so many ways we can get a passenger onto an airline. And there's only so many ways that we can save fuel. And there's only so many ways that we can do that. And you know what, that leaves 20% of our operating budget for technology. Thank you. We've got to get done 200 projects. Thank you. I'll see you later. Now, the interesting part about that is they're doing exactly what they should do. Yep. They're kind of modeling the business out. They're thinking about, well, we're in airlines. There's only so much money you can make in airlines. You can do that thing. The difference is, is that they're not partnering with someone from technology who can look at the problem and say, you're making assumptions about what we can and can't do in that particular area. Right. And so I think that that's, that's the conversation that needs to happen because someone's making that when it comes to investment decisions. I mean, I even use an example from Amplitude, like someone was talking the other day and someone from the finance team had, had modeled something on the business and was talking about, and they just made this critical error in terms of where the team had attempted to optimize a part of our free to paid conversion funnel. And they just assumed that we had hit the limit of it. And then you talk to the team and they're like, we haven't even started trying to optimize that yet. There's so many things we could do from a design and technology standpoint to improve that. And mm-hmm. this is a company that does measurement all day. Like these disconnects happen even in a small company. So I think that that's one of the, and this is a long roundabout way of saying is you need to get the people who are modeling the business and then the people who understand what technology and design can do in the same room when you're forming the assumptions around where the budgets are going to go in the particular business, which is probably what Peter, Peter Moore would have suggested as well. And John, you had this great metaphor around this, right? Which is, I think, to me, this rings really true, especially in those large enterprises, right? Is everyone's trying to get technology to have a seat at the table. That's not going to do it. You're still playing that same zero-sum game with, we've got 20% left for technology. What can you do? It's not even what can you do. It's like you said it. We've got these 200 projects to complete. You better complete them. So whereas your vision around creating a new table, right, where you're actually using technology and the fact that these, if these things are learning from the market, from the customer, from the actual value that they're delivering, yeah, I think you and I have seen this, right, is yeah. have seen the business be able to transform around what technology enables, not to, what, what... A lot of this has to do with changes in business models too, frankly. I mean, this is the difference yeah. between the idea that you buy something and then you pay for it in a certain way and then you service it in a certain way. I mean, this is like the shift to software as a service, why it's so important for startups, right? Like it changes the economics of the thing. And the reason why companies like Amplitude need the funding they do in many ways is that the cost of acquisition is pretty high but the payoff is pretty immense. There's a company that I know of that has a great story and their unit of pricing was a dollar per something. So you can imagine it's like a dollar per house or a dollar per something like that. And over the last eight years, whatever, they've gone 15X that amount. So the unit that they used to charge for, they've figured out how to capture 15 times more money from the money flowing through the system Yeah, <laughs> over the years. And you don't do that 
by marketing better. You don't do yeah. that by those things. They did that because they had a deep understanding of their customers, a deep understanding where money was leaving customers' wallets and going to various providers and sometimes not providers, you know, like literally an accountant sitting at a desk and trying to spend all day in a spreadsheet or whatever. And yeah. they just expanded that footprint into the customer and what they were doing. And so I think that this is where it's really important you get the right people in the room because yeah. if you don't if you don't understand how business model innovation relates to how this unlocks the budget for technology i think atlassian the other day someone from atlassian was saying that they spend 40 or 50% their budget goes to technology <laughs> compared to you know 10 20 yeah. 30% for those and, things and like that for for yeah. years <laughs> like yeah yeah exactly Oh, so now, much of course, they've dialed that in with a transactional sales model, and it's but it just goes to show you what a flywheel you can get with this combination of de design technology and fast learning and iteration yeah. with the market. So, the way I've been thinking about this increasingly is we've got a lot of these large enterprises stuck thinking just about economies of scale and reducing unit costs and so on, which is sort of the example you gave. But when you properly bring in design technology and you start thinking about the, the actual economics of flow. So the fact yeah. that if you enable these things to learn and to have this fast feedback loop, and it's, yeah. it's not about how often you ship, it's, it's just how quickly you can learn to innovate and you know, to find new customer patterns that you can leverage with the teams, the assets, that, yeah. the technologies that you've got. That's when you see these amazing things happen. So yeah. I think that the key thing around this is measurement, is, is actually yeah. understanding both, again, the measurements around flow, but John, you've also got some really important insights because you know, the question I often get asked, like we, we've got the flow metrics, right? Like flow yeah. time is, is your time to value, but that's only part of the equation because if you're now delivering value fast, you need to actually understand what's happening with the customer journey, what's happening with the pipeline conversion, right. what's happening with customer retention and so on with the customer analytics and, and satisfaction themselves. You can just share with us your insights around how you bring that understanding and measurement of customer experience back into the design technology loop. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the main thing, you know, people who maybe have used like Google Analytics or something like that, and they, they're they like, oh, people came to my website and, <laughs> or you know, they spent seven seconds on my website or 12 seconds or whatever. I think some people are not even aware that the products exist to do deeper behavioral insights. So they're, they've used like a BI tool like Looker and kind of like fuse their business data into one place, or they've used a product like Google Analytics and seen page views or something. And I mean, this is the benefit of working where I work is that you see these, our product offers really deep behavioral insights. So, you know, asking things like, what behaviors in my product eventually lead to conversion? We have some causal inference in our product, like what explains the conversion of someone who fits in this cohort into another cohort? Or what behaviors predict whether someone's going to be around in three weeks <laughs> instead of four weeks? Or exactly where in the funnel are they dropping off? Like a funnel is a very good example of, you could know a funnel, you could know, wow, only 10% of people convert. But if you can't explain why, you can't explain or even have a hypothesis about why. It's mm -hmm. very, very difficult. So the reason why I like working where I work is that you know, we tracked companies that are taking that next leap You know, to think about what specific behaviors in the product we can tie to value and we can tie to revenue and we can tie to different things that, that they're doing. And another way to think about this is like marketing analytics is very much, it's pretty transactional. It's like, did my campaign perform well or didn't it? But even marketing now is becoming much more intense with software as a service products. Like you've got marketing or lifecycle marketing, which is meant to try to, like our product allows people to use product behavior to figure out how to target marketing. 
back at those people to encourage them to use features they haven't explored yet or to do things that they haven't explored yet. So anyway, so that's me and my company and, and what this thing is. But back to this, this issue, I think, for companies when they talk about outcomes is that a lot of these firms do have like top level metrics. You know, they'll talk about like daily active users yep. or videos or anything like that. And they're thinking about revenue and it's not like they're metrics not aware. They're pretty metrics aware. The gap for them is the kind of, in order to make good technology and design decisions, you need to have a better understanding, a more in-depth understanding about how people are using your product. So I think that that's like the missing link for a lot of these companies that have, they've been spending 10 years with people promising being data informed. Like the data is kind of the problem, but more is who's allowed to see the data (laughs) and who's allowed to make decisions based on. Exactly. Who's allowed to act on that data and how quickly they can make those decisions. And that's the thing with, you know, something like Amplitude is like self-service analytics for product teams. Like the whole idea is that you have a cross-functional team kind of in there looking at the results of the experiments that they've run and how it's working and and doing things. The interesting part here though is, is about competition. I always say that in Amplitude, we're dealing with companies that are like 2002 and then 2022. That's literally the range. There's some companies that are operating like it's 2002. And I remember tech companies operating. There's some operating like it's ahead, you know, in the future to do it. And I think that for a lot of these companies, the main thing is, is that the banks are operating like it's 2008, but their competitors are operating like it's 2010 and 2006. You know, and the tech 2.0 companies are operating like it's 2015, but their competitors are operating like it's 2016 and 2014, right? And then this is the advantage of getting to see lots of companies because you get to see the 2022 companies and you get to see the 2002 companies. And so if you're not in a competitive environment, if you're not winning or losing based on behavioral insights, there's no going to be burning fire to kind of figure that thing out. But we do see that a lot at Amplitude are these large fortune, you know, N companies coming to us that realize finally that they're in a, dis- a disruption situation that if they do, especially yes. with COVID, like if they yep. do not figure out this part of the puzzle, they will no longer be able to function the way that they have been functioning in the past to do it. So it's, it's a pretty fascinating thing to, to be with. But I think as this relates to is the difference between like measurement and metrics. And the example that I use is like a Fitbit. A Fitbit has five sensors on it and does all sorts of measurements. And then Fitbit comes up with all these crazy metrics, you know, like your sleep score and your whatever and your different things. The biggest mistake I see with some of these companies is they don't think holistically about why they're measuring. They just copycat someone else's KPI from another company and say, oh, we need to use daily active users or we need to use cart size or we need to use X. And they're not asking the question like, what decisions do we need to make and what deeper insights do we need to be able to make those decisions? So that's what I do almost all day is talking to teams about what are your levers and your decisions and what's the minimal amount of measurement required to validate the things that you need to validate and to do those things. So that's kind of the what I spend a lot of my day doing, not so much the what's your retention rate or whatever. If your retention rate's going up and down and you can't do anything about it, it's kind of useless metric <laughs> just doing this thing. So I don't know. There's a lot involved with measurement, but hopefully I've covered some of the interesting parts of it. Yeah. And I could not agree more, right? Is that the, having the right set of metrics for what your organization is, what your business are, what your competitive profile is, is key. And I think the really interesting thing is, like you're saying, is that there are now more burning fires, right? There's, there are more, more companies living in yeah. 2022. And yeah. so here, I'm going to ask you a... Interesting question. And following on your interesting question that you asked to the DevOps Enterprise Summit audience. So you said, what would you do if you've got a two-level promotion? 
Yeah. And you wanted to hear some answers. So John, if what would you do if you got a two-level promotion, which put you at the head of a company living in 2002, wanting to do this, you've got oh. a board who, <laughs> I, I just want to turn this one on you. There is competition. There are burning fires. There is a threat of a tech giant or a, or a scale-up yeah. taking more of your lunch that, that is starting to get noticed. What would you do at the helm? I think that what you need to do is you need to find the burning fire. You need to put a dollar value on it. And you need to go to the mat in some ways to, especially if you got the promotion, like even if it's six months, this is kind of a funny story. I mean, I I just recently became the head of education at Amplitude and we're going through our whole budgeting process. And I sort of, someone said, well, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to ask for for your budget? And I was like, well, I prefer to actually get a very small amount of money and then prove that I can make that, like get, turn it into money. And then I, then you could give me more. And they're like, well, that, that's not how we do it. So even like as a startup, they're like, well, we're planning this budget to do these things. But I think what I would try to do in that situation is to negotiate a performance measure, negotiate the funding unit for the team. And I probably would actually include, now I think that they would be pretty worried about that if they're like, well, does that mean you're not going to do it? You know, how are we going to know you're making any progress to it? So I probably would even include some of the normal like flow-based metrics and other things like that in it, because I would want them to know that it's funny at Amplitude, we actually have a metric called bets. Like we have a bets quota that we try to reach every quarter. And we do that not because we're sort of output over outcomes. We do that because we know you can't win games that you aren't playing. Right. So we need to have some flow of new bets to go in. That's an input into my model. Right. You have a bet map instead of a roadmap. Yeah, we kind of do actually. That's, that's how we do it. (laughs) And so, but the whole point there is if I got that two level promotion, first, I would find the number that I'd be funded on. And then second, I would try to negotiate enough of a runway to do that. Third, I would include some of the flow-based metrics because I think that if the organization had a lot of inertia, that like a lot of dependencies that was making it impossible for me to advance along that, I would need to know what part of the input that was. Like if literally things, you know, I always joked with Gene, he always loved the tweet, the company going from 15 to 30 days to 150 to 300 days. Like he always liked that one. And, you know, people have used that one to describe it, right? Various people. I think that that's the core of this too, that you need both. Like you need the engine and you need that funding unit. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if I can get this number from here to here, I will get more funding to do this to this. If I can move the the number from here to here. And also like a mechanism for revisiting the number. And that's the whole idea of building like impact trees and other types of maps, because you don't want to get yourself into a situation where you come up with a minimally viable measurement and it doesn't actually prove to be the best measurement for that thing. Like you need notionally the organization to understand. Like at Amplitude, our North Star is weekly learning users, not weekly querying users, but a user who's in our product sharing what they learned with other coworkers and then also the long tail consumption of that learning. So if I make a dashboard and share it with you, but you never look at it again, it's not very valuable to us, right? And so notionally, that's the right idea, weekly learning users. How we measure it might change because we might learn more about what makes a weekly learning user. So what I would try to negotiate with that two-level thing is a notionally correct metric and with a minimally viable measurement attached to it that then we could iterate on. Like, can we all agree that weekly learning users is notionally the right direction that we need to take? Yes. 
and then we can improve on that thing. I think that that's what these leaders need to do. I think the hardest thing in these large organizations is the person making that claim only has control over 20% of what the hell's happening. The other 80% is mired in some big digital transformation effort with teams all across the organization. So you need to create some kind of boundary <laughs> that you can get all the people in the room to do that. And I, I think that that's, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to do that, but the basics around that metric thing and, and getting that goal set and getting that North star set, I think is pretty important. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. And I knew we would, we would end this with some awesome sage advice from you. So that's great. Can you give us any insight into what you're working on now and where people can find you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, again, I'm sort of heading up this education team. So speaking of company as the product at our company, we see education as an extension of the product. So I'm actually, I report to our head of product and I have a product background and UX research background, but I'm focusing on learning now because it's, it's like what we're going to help to do in the thing. So that's my current challenge at the moment. Like I'm pretty, I have to hire up a team. So I'm going to, if you don't hear a lot of tweets from me, it's because I'm like hiring and, you know, getting my own team going to do that. That's pretty much it. Maybe towards the end of the year, I'm going to finish up my, I did in 2020, I've written 53 blog posts, one a week for the whole year. I missed one Thursday (laughs) and had to ship on Friday, but otherwise I was pretty consistent. So maybe like keep in tune with that and maybe I'll stop. Maybe I'll keep going, but we'll find out. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to John for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Mick plus one or project to product. You can reach out to John on LinkedIn or using his Twitter, which is at John Cuttlefish. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.